If you're here each week, uh, you will find out that we pray for different gospel partnerships that we have. If you're from Valley Christian and you're here today, one of the partnerships we pray for regularly is Valley Christian. And we'll reach out to Troy Stalls and Chris Becker and, and just the different principals and administrators and, hey, how can we pray for you guys, you know? Or uh, Act 29 is our church planting network, uh, local churches, uh, Bethany. I know some people from Bethany have been here and we pray for them. We uh, just Love to partner together. We know we're not the only church on the planet. We know that we're not the only people proclaiming the gospel, teaching the Bible. So we love to partner together. So today we're in Revelation chapter 11. Had I remembered that we were doing all this, maybe I might have done something one-off instead of dive back into Revelation today. But hey, it's what God wanted to do, evidently. So uh, my, or, or my poor planning, one of the two. So Revelation chapter 11 is where we're picking up. And I want to kind of want to start back at the beginning of Scripture for a minute. I just want to talk about the promises of God. And, and what we see, if we're going to really kind of simplify what the Old Testament is about, it begins with a promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 3, as he promises to the people, can you reset that timer to the right time, please, and then start it, please, Alex? I appreciate it. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. And... Uh, so the Old Testament begins with a promise. Right there in Genesis, we, we see the creation of humanity and, and the call. Is that my, that's my reminder. See, man, I'm just completely out of it. All right. So we love having kids in our room with us. We love having our families together. We encourage, we actually encourage our kids to stay with their families and worship together with their families, but we do provide a classroom if you want it. Those of you kids that are giving me the eyeball that want to go to the classroom are free to follow Raquel out. All right, I've been off since the beginning and realizing I was doing the call to worship today. All right, reboot, ready? Old Testament, Jesus, uh, God, promise, here we go. Creation, fall, sin enters into human history, and on like page two of your Bible is a promise from God. God, right there, as sin enters into human history, makes a covenant promise. He promises that the seed of a woman will come and though there will be a momentary victory that Satan will bruise his heel, but that he, meaning Jesus, will crush Satan's head. So there's this promise. Genesis 3 brings us this promise at the beginning of the Old Testament. And really, the story of the Old Testament is not that complex. It's about tracking that promise. That that promise weaves its way through a series of people as we track the seed the offspring of that woman, all the way down till we pick up the story with Jesus in the New Testament. That's what the Old Testament's about. It's tracking that one promise. Now, in the midst of tracking that promise, as we're following this lineage from this family to this family to this family to this family, what happens is this family at one point becomes a nation. Now, when that happens, we begin to follow a people group. Not always the same people group, but mostly them. And so there is this unconditional covenantal promise that God has made to bring salvation through Christ, through a Savior to come. But as we see how that plays out, as we see how people begin to come to faith in God, and they trust in this promise to be fulfilled, they begin to live lives of faith, and we see them multiply, even becoming a nation. And then we get another promise that's made in the Old Testament, but this one is a conditional promise, and we'll put it on the screen. It's Exodus 19, God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. He says, now therefore, if, here's your condition, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There is an if-then, if you will, conditional clause. If you keep the covenant. Now, this is a conditional covenant. It's not God's covenant of salvation. That is an unconditional covenant that we can't participate in. Only God can do that. Only God can bring salvation to sinful humanity. But as people begin to follow and track that promise and be obedient to God, God makes a conditional covenant with a people group and says, if you obey... You will be my people, and I will make you a kingdom of priests. And here's what that means for us today. 
that I will make of you a nation that will be mediators. Priests are mediators. They're in between. A nation of mediators that will be to the nations, from God to the nations. And so what this means is I will make you a people group. You will speak on behalf of me. You will go out to the people that don't know of God's promises of salvation. You'll go out to them. But you have to be faithful to me, God says. And I will make you my people, and you'll be a kingdom of priests. The Old Testament ends with the first promise yet to be fulfilled. No Messiah has come. No Savior has come. And the second promise is in question. But the people of God have become so disobedient, and generation after generation, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of God calling this people group back to him, allowing them to be conquered by other nations, conquering them, sending them out. And when they return to him, he protects them again, brings them back together. So the Old Testament ends about 400 years before Jesus is born. And the Messiah, the Savior of promise, has not come. The unconditional covenant has not yet been fulfilled. And the conditional promise of a people group to be a kingdom of priests is in question. The New Testament opens up with the coming Savior. Jesus comes and fulfills the unconditional promise, the covenant of God to save a sinful humanity. Jesus enters into human flesh. He is born of a woman in fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3. He is fully God, yet fully human. He enters into our human story. He lives the life that you and I are called to live, but we fail. We choose to fail. And then he gives his life for us. The very thing we just talked about, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. He gives his life for us, seemingly a victory for Satan, but then comes the resurrection. And Jesus triumphs over Satan's sin and death. And that's ultimately the gospel, and that's kind of where we left off last Sunday. And so this promise is fulfilled. But you see, before that, we back up to our Good Friday service. Who are the people shouting for the death of Jesus? Who's been betrayed by the people of God? The quote-unquote people of God. They're the ones who don't want to lose power and have betrayed Jesus. Ultimately, not only failing the Ten Commandments and failing the covenant relationship, but completely betraying the Savior that God has brought that was made as a promise. And so Jesus begins to teach and speak in a new way, and he begins to create a new covenant people. And I want to put two verses on the screen for you. In 1 Peter, Peter tells the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, church, he's speaking to Christians, are a chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. The job transfers to the new covenant community that Jesus creates. We'll see that today in communion. Jesus says, a new covenant I give you in my blood. He is now the mediator of a new covenant with a new covenant people group, the church. Revelation opens up in chapter 1 saying this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, meaning Jesus, by his blood, meaning Jesus, right? And made us, the church, a kingdom of priests to his God, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. So two things, a new covenant people, a new spiritual Israel, a new governed by God people empowered to be the messengers of faith, to fulfill what had been failed prior. So God keeps his promises but the conditional promise of being obedient and being a priest to the nations has been failed. Now, this should encourage us that now we get to become that, but it should also cause us a bit of a warning. Do we not see the job we've been given? We are made to be a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom where Christ is king, but we're to be a kingdom of priests. We're to be that mediator between salvation and a sinful world. Not mediator in the way that Christ mediates our sin, pays for our sin, but messengers. This is where we left off in Revelation with John being told to go out 
to the people. And I want to pause there. I want to give you kind of a main idea for today, the church in the world. The church is to fulfill the mandate given by Jesus to be witnesses to others. That's Acts 1.8. That Jesus is alive. That's the, what we are to witness to, that Jesus is alive. And then to make disciples, obviously, Matthew 28, we are empowered to fulfill our calling even though we may endure hardship in this life, right? We are called to go. We are called to speak. We are called to say even in hardship, even in hard times. Now, there are differing beliefs about Revelation for sure. There's a lot of confusion around Revelation. I'll tell you this, primary confusion around Revelation is not knowing the Old Testament. All of the imagery comes out of the Old Testament. It partners together with Jesus' teaching, and it calls the church to go, to be, to speak, to act. And then it reminds us of what Jesus said, that they hated him, they're going to hate us. That in this world, we will suffer tribulation, he said. John, the same author of Revelation, said that we will endure many tribulations. And so here we are, we're in this book, and we've been seeing the cyclical nature of Revelation. It will tell us a story from above, kind of this perspective from heaven of what God is doing. It will then come down to what we call the lower story, what's going on here on earth, what we are enduring. And then it will go back up, and it just gives us this perspective change. So I'm going to start right at the end of chapter 10, the last words we read three Sundays ago, and it says this, verse 10. By the way, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you borrow a Bible, I can get you there quickly. It's on page 1034. Revelation 10, starting in 10, this is John speaking. He says, then I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John is told, you must again go speak. Now, prophesy does not mean future tell. It means speak on behalf of God. Sometimes that speaking on behalf of God is for right here, right now. Most of the time, it's for right here, right now. Sometimes it has a future implication. Church is the same way. This is supposed to be the word of God going out to us, the church, Almost all of it is relevant right here, right now, but we do also look towards heaven. So we speak God's word. It is for here, for now. It has some future implication. But to prophesy does not mean to future tell. It means to speak God's message to God's people with God's authority. And that we would hear from God. And so here's what he tells John. You are to go speak God's message to God's people with God's authority. You're going to go prophesy to the people, to many nations and languages and kings. And he says, you're going to eat this scroll. He eats this scroll and it's sweet in his mouth. It's bitter in his stomach. And that's where we left off three Sundays ago. You see, the gospel message is sweet to us. It is a promise of God's forgiveness and redemption and making us whole that our broken lives are knit back together, slowly over time becoming what God had created us to be but it's also bitter in our stomach because there are some that will never enter into the gospel. And so John has given the message and he reminds us it's sweet to us, but it also has bitter implications. And he is reminded to go out and to be that messenger on behalf of God. Revelation 11, is we're picking up today, starting in verse 1. Again, this is connected to that last line. Remember, we added chapters and verses to help us find it, but this is just the next sentence. Verse 1 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like, like, a, uh, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. The temple, the altar, and those who worship there are referring to the church on earth. We've been watching this story, the church, the letters going out to these seven real churches. John is speaking to them. Jesus through, is speaking through John to them. Those seven churches are enduring persecution, tribulation, suffering. Some are even being put to death for their faith. And Jesus is proclaiming to them the message of redemption. It moves from that up into heaven where we get a glimpse of the throne, where God is on the throne, and the plan of redemption is held in his hand like a scroll. And there is this moment where they ask, who is worthy to, un to open the scroll? Who is worthy to accomplish redemption? And, and Jesus, it says, a lamb looking as though he had been slain. Jesus is there to open the scroll. 
and worship breaks out in heaven. And we hear the prayers of the saints rise up like a fragrant offering. As tribulation, suffering, persecution is happening on earth, redemption in God's plan is unfolding as well. So again, we have the upper story, we have the lower story. The lower story is what we see. How we live in the upper story is God's perspective and what God is doing in the same time. And so we see this play out, so we go back to six, and we, we see these seals open up, and it begins with the gospel. It moves forward through different struggles and trials on earth. And then we see, ultimately, the sixth seal is the end of the earth. We see final judgment and the end from a lower story perspective. But then the seventh seal opens up and it starts the story over again. It's called discursive teaching. It, it is telling the same thing in cycles from different perspectives. It's not linear and connected one after the other. And so we begin these seven trumpets and again we see these trials on earth and then we hear these woes and in between these things we get these interludes. And during these interludes, the church is called to action in the midst of this. And that's where we are. And John is told, I want you to go measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. But he's speaking about the church. Remember, again, the covenant community has shifted. The language remains. We have a lot of Old Testament language that sounds very, we'll say, Jewish in nature, if you will. But it's actually God's language, not a people's language. God creates the temple, not a people. God says who is Israel, who is, Israel literally translates as governed by God. God says who that is, not a DNA. You with me? So measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. See, the church is called a temple also. Ephesians 2 says this, and we'll put it up. It says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom we, the whole structure, are being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Right? You get to be little temples. Remember, your body is a temple. You guys have all heard that verse. Right? We get to become the place of God's presence. And when we gather together, we are built together uniquely as a church. But Peter gets to use the language of temple there. Right? So when it says measure the temple and the altar, it's those who are of faith. The altar is all about the gospel. See, the reason there is no altar in a Christian church, and especially in the Reformed tradition, we have no altar. We don't use the language of altar. And that's because the altar has been satisfied by Christ. His blood has been shed, satisfying the need for an altar. See, the altar is where they would offer sacrifice. But see, that sacrifice has been made once for all. So we don't use the language of come to the altar. We don't do that. The altar is removed. The altar has been satisfied. But the imagery remains. And so you're to measure the people of God, measure those who are in Christ, because the gospel naturally lands there. That as Jesus sheds his blood, he creates a new covenant community. Again, we'll see that today in communion. Note the word communion. Community built by the new covenant in Christ's blood. He's saying measure, identify. I'll read it again. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. He says identify the people who have been covered by Christ. And so today, if you are here, and you are in Christ, in other words, you have confessed Christ as your Savior, maybe that's been in baptism or in membership or something. And you have identified yourself as a follower of Jesus, and you get up every day with Jesus at the top of your org chart to follow and glorify and honor Jesus. And you live a life of repentance empowered by the Spirit of God himself. And if you are in Christ, then you are covered by the blood that he shed once for all. It says this in Hebrews, it says, but when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He says the altar was just a foreshadowing of Christ to come, but Christ has come now and satisfied that. That's why there's no altar. That Christ has done this for us. So here's what he says. I'm going to put it all together. 
Then I was given a measuring rod, verse 1, I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Let's do verse 2 as well. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Measuring is about identifying those who are in Christ. And God is telling John through this, this image, remember, Revelation is almost never literal. It means literal things, but it uses imagery to get us there. It gives us the images, especially Old Testament images that we're going to see in just a second, to get us to a place of understanding. It's written in an apocalyptic genre, which is image-driven rather than just saying it outright. There's much more you can do with an image. Images come with meaning and background and context and feeling and emotion. It brings us so much more. And so he says, I want you to know this, identify those who are Christ's and identify those who are outside of Christ. And identification here is about protecting the bride of Christ, the church, the covenant community. See, those outside, we don't count those outside, he says. They will be trampled. Verse 3, it says, and I will grant. Notice this is all connected. It's all one thought. John, go preach to the nations. Identify who those who are Christ and those who are not. He says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, stay with me for just a minute. There's a lot of speculation around the two witnesses. I'm going to give you the, the, the simplest biblical historic answer for this. The two witnesses is the, root, the true church today on earth. Or the true, when I say today, between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus, the church are the two witnesses. Now, you say, okay, wait a minute, isn't this supposed to be two future people or this? Stay with me. Two witnesses is this. It starts in Deuteronomy. When God is giving the law, Deuteronomos, two law, right? The second giving of the law. First giving comes in Exodus, where God gives his law. We see the Ten Commandments and the expansion on that. Then Deuteronomy plays this out much further. Leviticus is about rules for worship. But in Deuteronomy, they're told how to live in a civil society. And they are told that you cannot... You cannot accuse and condemn someone on the basis of one person. That you must have two or more witnesses, right? That this becomes the rule. You must have at least two witnesses. So Jesus comes along. What do you do? He sends them out two by two, right? Why? Because you must have two witnesses, right? This is a, this is a rule that's embedded in Judaism. They understand the symbolism of two. Later, Jesus will go and talk about that and say, listen, I don't witness just on my account, but there's another who bears witness about me. In one case, he's speaking about John the Baptist. In another case, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit bearing witness to who he is. At his baptism, he says, even God has borne witness to who I am. When God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And so this idea of two witnesses is that witnesses go out in truth. But again, it's this message of the church being this messenger for God. It stays there in John with the scroll, the gospel that has to go out. It's sweet to us, but it's bitter because some will never come to faith. It says, I want you to identify who is and who is not Christ's own, his covenant community. And then I want you to send them. They are the two witnesses. Now let's read this, and it keeps developing this theme. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. The sackcloth is a, a sense of mourning and struggle. Again, the church will struggle. The church is told we will endure persecution. Now, we live here where we have a lot of freedoms. We live in a place where we own a building with a church sign outside, says what we're doing right now on a sign. That's a lot of freedom. That is not true in other nations. You can't let your freedom, your situation dictate what, what the Bible says. Because see, on the other side of the planet right now, people are hiding in underground churches and people are being persecuted for their faith. Do we endure persecution? I mean, a little. If you go across the street here to Cerritos High School and you try and live a life that is uh, a life of faith and obedience to Jesus, Will you endure persecution for saying, nope, there's really only two created genders? Well, yeah. Maybe you make a stand and say, listen, there's life from conception to natural death. Maybe you'll take a stand for that. Maybe you'll endure some hardship for that. Maybe you make a stand about something that is true and, and people want to cancel you for things like that. So maybe. 
But I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see martyrdom for my faith. It could happen, but as of yet, I don't see it. What I see rather is getting the church off track in America rather than outright persecuted. When we lose our understanding that we are a prophetic community, that we are to be a mediator between God and community, God and culture, God and the world, when we lose sight of that, and we get so busy with everything else in life that we lose sight that we have a job to do, we're just as ineffective as if we were being persecuted. In fact, historically, the persecuted church has been quite powerful. So God says, I will, uh, Jesus says through John, I will send out my witness, the church, it will be my witnesses and they will have power. Verse four, these are the two olive, so the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, the first one's easy. Lampstands have been repeatedly said in Revelation and Jesus himself defines it for us. Lampstands are the churches, right? And so these two witnesses, the churches, the church, plural, not just us, but the churches, again, we partner with other churches, right? That we believe there are other gospel works that we partner with. We just did a, a men's retreat where we had multiple churches. Yeah, we put it together. We, all kinds of men showed up from different churches, right? Same gospel, same salvation, same Jesus, same spirit. So we partner together. And so we know these lampstands are the church. Jesus tells us that. Again, then, the olive trees is straight out of Zechariah 4, and we'll put up a couple verses from Zechariah 4. This is an Old Testament pro prophet near the end of the Old Testament. It says that, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it. There are two olive trees by it, and one on the right of the bowl and the other's on the left. And, this, and the, the angel asked Zechariah, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, right? We all know that verse. We just don't know what's in the context of what are the two olive trees and the lampstands. He says, listen, that the lampstands, the church goes out, the messengers of God, the people of God go out, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Right, That we, the church, are to be empowered by the Spirit of God. That's the very thing Jesus said before he ascended. He tells the church that first assembled gathering, that church in Jerusalem, he says, stay here, wait here until my Spirit falls upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. Then you'll be my witnesses here, there, and to the ends of the earth. Wait here until you're empowered by the Spirit. The same message is going now back to John to the churches. Listen, you are lampstands, you're a light to a dark world, but there is no light without the olive oil, right? There is no light shining, no lamp that can burn without the oil that is its fuel, its power. We are to be the lampstand, the church is to be that lamp, that light in the darkness. And the light, the thing that we burn is that power, the spirit that comes through us as the church. See, there are no lampstands without olive trees because the olives provide the fuel. See, the church is to go out and to be light, but we're not to go out in our own strength, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So let's read that all together. Verse three, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Remember, the lampstands have already been defined in Revelation as the churches. So we know what this is. This is not some future people. This is the churches going forward. So here's a note for you that we'll put up. Olive trees and lampstands. Jesus is calling his church to be empowered lights in a dark world by word and deed, by the way. Without the oil, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the lampstands of the church cannot shine their light. Without the Spirit, we are ineffective. We are not empowered. We are not what we are intended to be. We could try really hard, but we will never be effective but by the Spirit. So verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now again, we see Jesus opening up in chapter 1. It says he got a sword coming out of his mouth. None of us think that Jesus literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. It clearly speaks to his word being piercing. 
right? To his word, both uh, a sword is a beautiful image. It's, it's both an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. Anybody who knows weaponry, it's one of the few things you use both ways. It defends the believer, and it cuts through and reveals our sin. Well, we don't think it's a literal sword. So literal fire doesn't need to come out of their mouth. They're not little mini dragons, right? Fire is speaking to the word, the message, the gospel. But it also is speaking about protecting the church, its mess- the messengers of God. Now, here's where it gets challenging. Because we've been told two things. Identify, measure out, tell me who. Not that God doesn't know. He's saying identify those who are in Christ and those who are not. He says, do this that I might protect them. But then we're also told, you may be persecuted. And, and some of these churches, as Jesus opens up chapter 2, chapter 3, as we see the individual churches addressed, he says, some of you are giving your life for the faith and have already died, and some of you will die, and some of you will be persecuted. Noted that there are two churches that are not told they'll be persecuted. What they're told is, you're not even on track anymore. It's no wonder you're not being persecuted. So we have to reconcile what is protected, what is the church protected, and what is the church persecuted? How, how does that become the same thing? How can both things be true? So we'll put this on the screen. The church is protected. Jesus has promised that nothing will overcome his church. That's Matthew 16. Right? And on this rock I will build my church and hell or Satan will not prevail over it. Nothing will overcome Christ's church. But also that we will be hated in this life. John 17, his prayer. He reminds them that. The promise is that the church will endure, but not every individual in it. We inherit eternity, not comfort on earth. Here's our problem. We think this is where it all matters. Instead of living like resident aliens, we live like this is our home. And so when we don't have comfort, or we strive, we spend our life striving for comfort here, and then we wonder why the church is weak and ineffective and, and wonder why we lose sight of mission, it's because we're so sidetracked. So you don't have to be persecuted in America. We're just off track. We're so busy and distracted that we're fairly ineffective. And so Jesus is calling the church back. Those two churches in Revelation that are not told they will suffer are told to return or they will suffer forever. See, we are promised that the church will prevail, that the message of Christ will prevail. But you and I, we could give our lives for that. And if that day comes, know that we are secure eternally, that our forever is handled. Our temporary is just that. It's temporary. It's going to come to an end one way or another. It may come to an end for the gospel. It may not. But the promise is that the church will remain. The church will prevail until the end. That the church remains in the tribulation. That it is a light. That it is the messenger. That no one replaces the church as the messenger of Christ. That we remain. That we suffer. That we endure. That we persevere. That we stay focused. That we understand that we are the messengers. So Jesus continues to call us forward through Revelation. Verse 6, it says, They, this is the church, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they often desire. Heavy Egypt imagery right here, right? Think back to the ten plagues. Like all that kind of stuff he's saying, right? The listener here understood that. They, they resonated. They understood the Old Testament imagery. As soon as you said it, they're like, Egypt, got it. I get the plagues. But see, we hear this. We think of something unique that has to happen. Well, they're going to have unique power. We're going to have something different. See, Jesus empowered the church with everything we need already. Everything to be effective for the gospel we have. It is within our grasp if we would only take hold. But here's what he says, that they will have power. And when I hear this, and instead of thinking of something else that would be extraordinary, I want you to just think of the opposite of what we should be in the community. In Jeremiah 29, the, exile, the, the uh, people of God have been exiled for their disobedience, and they're living in Babylon. And Jeremiah's that prophet, kind of a, a, a contemporary of Daniel. 
And he says this, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray for them. For in their welfare, you'll find your welfare. See, the presence of the church in a community should make the community better. Because we're here, the blessing on us should spread out into the community. But then the warning is, if the community rejects you, no blessing. God says, then plagues, then devouring, then judgment. And so just think of how we are here and how God restrains some of what God could do right now. What the world does deserve, I'd say what we deserve. But because of Christ, it holds back waiting for that last person, that final person written in the book of life to come to faith so that all of the elect are in Christ. And as that waits, as God restrains his wrath, the presence of the church is a part of that. But if we're persecuted, that blessing lives. And so he says, then they have this power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall. He says, rain's falling now because I'm blessing them because the people are there. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Again, he's even noting, symbolically called this. He says, listen, they will not be overcome until every last person that God has chosen to be his has come to faith. He says, and when that happens, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. We just read about that in the last chapter. We will get to that in chapter 13. He says, but he will wage war on the church and he will kill the church but not until their testimony is complete, not until the job is done. Again, church on earth, enduring persecution, even at the end, enduring a great spiritual persecution that will become the end. It continues. Let me give you a note. Just, let me just pause there for a minute. Let me put this on the screen. The church in the world, persecution may come from our beliefs being countered to culture or from living in a hostile world. Hardship, suffering, or death could be the outcome. The calling remains the same. Proclaim the good news of Jesus to all who will listen. The Sodom and Egypt thing. Sodom was this kind of sin run rampant to a very ugly place. That was Sodom. There's all kinds of hostility and violence and immorality there. And Egypt actually enslaved God's people. Right? Actually took the people who had started as a blessing to them. Right? They had food to eat in a famine because of them. But then they began to grow and get big, and there was jealousy that entered in, and fear and power, kind of a political thing, and so they enslaved them all. So sin gone crazy, and national kind of enslavement or, or government takeover. It's kind of that idea. That's what we call Sodom in Egypt. And so we live in a world that we could encounter that. We live in a world filled with sin, and, and we live over here in a place where we could lose our freedoms. Maybe here, maybe some other, maybe this way, maybe that, whatever. But he says the church will endure until every last person comes to faith that God has ordained. Verse 9, it says, For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, by the way, it's a category of people, earth dwellers. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make Mary and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. This is a repeated people group or, or term or category in Revelation, meaning people that just live for here, right? People that are outside of the faith, the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. And it says the church will be defeated by Satan and unburied. And this idea of unburied Again, nothing yet has been literal. We haven't had to take anything literally to understand the depth of meaning. The left unburied, to, to be unburied in Rome in this day, 1900 years ago, was shameful. That you were shamed. But it is more of a shame on the people because once you're dead, there's nothing you can do about it. It's not like you're like, hey, dying, got to go bury myself, right? The shame that is there as people try and shame a conquered or defeated church, the shame is actually on them. The judgment is on them. They're celebrating, hey, this, these people have been a torment to us. 
They've been saying these things that are contrary to our likes and dislikes, to our seeking our own pleasures or our seeking our own power. And they've been fighting back against that with the gospel and, and calling people to repent and turn to God. And they've been a torment to us, it says. And so they celebrate the absence of the light. They celebrate the absence of that voice of God speaking to culture. So again, these earth dwellers, there's another note, the church in the world. Revelation portrays the church on earth as being shamed and rejected by those around us. Scripture continues to call us to be witnesses for Christ even when rejected or persecuted. I would say Scripture calls us to be witnesses for Christ, especially when we've been rejected or persecuted. But again, we have so little of that here, or it's so light here, we almost lose the message. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God had entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Here's that moment as we reach, again, another telling of the final judgment. Verse 12, and when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Every time in Revelation and in the Old Testament prophets, I can't think of an exception in the Old Testament, I can tell you for sure in Revelation, every time you see a great earthquake, it symbolizes the end of this life and the final judgment. And so as the church is kind of defeated and being mocked, all of a sudden is resurrected and we see the great resurrection, we see the final moment of this worldly existence. Listen to how John summarizes it. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. We've been in these seven trumpets, and the first four trumpets were hardship and suffering and things on the earth, and we hear the, even the prayers of the martyrs calling out to God and the prayers of the church on earth crying out to God amidst the persecution. How long, O Lord? And we get through the first, three, or the first four trumpets, and it says, beware of the final three woes, and we see Kind of the, the wrath of God slowly begin to pour out on earth, and we see judgments take place, and we see then, we see actually finally when the last person who has come to faith, we see Satan allowed to attack and conquer the church. Again, another momentary victory, he thinks. But then as he does, there's this short period, and that's it. And it says that God calls us home and says, when we go, other people begin to proclaim who God is problem is, it's too late. Again, the gospel to us is sweet because it includes us in Christ. But it is bitter to understand that some will never make it. That some who come and attend churches every Sunday will never give their lives fully over to Jesus. Jesus says on that last day, some will call, Lord, Lord. Say, I never knew you. Do you want that to be us? We don't want to be so distracted and so off track and so enculturized by this kind of this idea of American Christianity. So many people say they're Christians. What that really means is I'm not an atheist, I'm not a Buddhist, and I was born here. That's really not a biblical picture of the gospel. And so that moment comes where the church is resurrected forever and the end comes. It's this upper story, lower story. We've been tracking this lower story, the, the judgment, the pain, the trial, the tribulation, the suffering. We, we've been tracking this through the lens of the church who, though they're being persecuted, continue to be a light empowered by God to the world until the end, until every last person has come to faith that God has ordained. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come. Verse 15, the seventh angel Blew his trumpet. We've been in the seven trumpets. This is the final trumpet, the final woe. It says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet is the final woe and it takes us all the way to the final moment of human existence. The final moment of, let me rephrase that, to this human existence. To this place where we live in flawed and sinful bodies where our flesh must die. It takes us all the way to that moment and it reminds us of the words that we say in the Lord's Prayer 
your kingdom come. See, we all have this idea of we go, but it's really your kingdom come. It says this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This world is transformed just like we are transformed, and we're called into it, that heaven and earth are made new. And we cry out, your kingdom come. So a great woe or a great blessing? Well, to us now, it sounds like a great blessing. But this is a great woe to those who have been judged. It reminds us of the eternal consequences of this message of being lights in our community. You see, the Bible never has these messengers that go out and look at people who don't follow Jesus and go, do you know if you died tonight, you'd go to hell? Never. Now, Jesus talked more about hell than I think any other biblical person, any other person in Scripture. But every time he does, he's sitting with his disciples and explaining the eternal consequences of us not living in the world as a light empowered by his power. To remind us that this isn't just, hey, seven steps to a better marriage, but this is forever. And that the church has a role here now. And that role has eternal consequences. So it's bitter and it's sweet. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It's good news. But the good news is found in Christ alone. There is no other way. So there are those who are in Christ who've been measured. The temple, the altar, and those who worship there. And then there are those in the outer court who are excluded. Again, sweet, but bitter. The 24 elders, verse 16 who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God. The upper story and the lower story meet. They come together eternally. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God becomes, or the, let me rephrase that, the kingdom of earth, the, the kingdom that we live in that is all about our kingdom, man's kingdom, human desires, human power. It is consumed finally with God's kingdom. That this broken world that plagues us daily is finally overcome and Christ reigns as king forever. And the angelic beings in heaven begin to fall down and worship Jesus one more time. Verse 17, it says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice the difference in the language. Who is and who was, not is to come, because he's already come here. He has come eternally now. So the king who was and who is forever. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nation raged and your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The end has come. The wicked have been judged. Those who have been Christ have been rewarded for being in Christ forever. And his kingdom now has taken root, has taken over. Sin is removed. Pain is removed. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. The kingdom has come. The king now reigns. Judgment has taken place. Verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Again, Jewish temple tabernacle language used for our forever. See, we're called to be a light in a dark world. We are called to be a new covenant people, that we are made a new people by Christ's blood. The very words I'm going to read to you in just a minute as we take communion is that we are called to be a new covenant community, that we are all called to, to dig in, buy in, be a part of a local church, a lampstand, if you will, that we are to, be, to belong to a family of families, to be members of, to be bought in, to be involved that we are to be that so that we can be a light in our community, that we are to fix our eyes on the gospel and the one who endured everything to make the gospel true for us, Christ our Lord, that we are to singularly fix ourselves on that and become that messenger, that we never lose our brightness, that we, we never lose the ability to be light in a dark world. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we gather today that we might be stirred on even more. 
that our flame might burn brighter, that our, our church might be that bright lampstand here in Cerritos and, and the greater kind of Long Beach, Orange County area. I thank you for all those here from Valley Christian and the churches they represent. May their churches burn brighter, Lord. May your message come from us to the world. Make us your kingdom of priests that we might begin to mediate, pray for, serve, love, share the gospel with those who don't know you. Help us to remember what a great calling you have put on us. Help us join you in that mission of being your light in the world today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite Joe to come up, and we're going we're to invite you to come forward to communion. Our elders and their wives are going to be on each side. They'll have the elements of communion. What we'll do is we'll kind of we'll work your way up, take communion, and, and go back to your seat. We'll take it together as a family. And so I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are, uh, again, if you're a regular part of a church, been baptized, you've identified yourself as following Jesus, this is for you. If that's not you, that's okay. You don't have to take communion today. We just ask that you, that you abstain. This is a meal for the believer. This is grace from Christ to us who are his. And so if that's you, we're going to invite you to come forward and celebrate communion with us as we participate in, in the cracker representing the bread that Christ broke and the, the grape juice that celebrates the covenant he made in his blood. And so if you would come forward and then return back to your seats, we will take communion together as a family.